There are some events that have so much gravity to them, they almost rip apart our space and time. They seemingly instantly send us into a new alternative reality. More recently, you might remember the Me Too movement. You might remember George Floyd's death. And for the purposes of this intro, regardless of what you think of them, I'm just trying to point out these moments in time that there's no going back from. Just take a moment to recognize the scale and weight of some of these moments in your life. Some things can happen and change the course of history in our collective conscious, in our individual lives. One of those events in my life was on September 11th, 2001. I remember the morning of my mom coming down and almost uncharacteristically waking me up really softly and gently and, and patting me on the back and saying, honey, you got to wake up. You got to come look at this. And going to school that morning after watching the towers come down on repeat all morning and us at school just staring at each other, trying to figure out if anyone had the answers, if anyone knew more than we knew. And no one did. But here's what I gathered when I was 12 years old. On September 11th, 2001, 19 militant Islamic extremists carried out the largest terrorist attack in human history. They used two commercial Boeing 767 airplanes, each carrying 20,000 gallons of fuel. At 8.46 Eastern Standard Time, United Airlines Flight 11 crashed into the North Tower, the World Trade Center. At 9.03 Eastern Standard Time, United Airlines Flight 175 crashed into the Southern Tower. At 9.37 Eastern Standard Time, United Airlines Flight 77 crashed into the west side of the Pentagon. And within two hours, both 110-story buildings had come down, created a giant cloud of dust and destruction. And there was a fourth plane, United Airlines Flight 93. It had been hijacked, but because it was delayed in taking off, the passengers aware that the terrorists weren't going to land the plane, successfully took the plane over and crashed it before it could be used in its own terrorist attack. A passenger, Thomas Burnett Jr., talking to his wife on the phone said, I know we're all gonna die. There's three of us here who are gonna do something about it. And another passenger, Todd Beamer, was heard saying, are you ready? Let's roll over an open line. It's suspected they attacked the cockpit with a fire extinguisher, causing the plane to come crashing into the ground at 500 miles per hour. Nobody knows the exact target of Flight 93 or how many lives they saved, but the general sentiment of America pretty closely captures those passengers' words. Somebody has to do something about this. Let's roll. There wasn't really time for collective grieving. It was about what happens now. At 9 p.m., President George W. Bush said, terrorist attacks can shake the foundations of our biggest buildings, but they cannot touch the foundation of America. These acts shatter steel, but they cannot dent the American resolve. We had just been attacked. Our people had been killed. We, as a nation, had an existential threat, and we needed to come together. 
for me at 13 years old and even more influential than the 9-11 attacks themselves was when Washington Post reporter Daniel Pearl was filmed being beheaded by Al-Qaeda. For many young Americans like myself, especially I think young male Americans, the first thing we did was hop onto the dark corners of the internet and watch the, uh, the unedited, unfiltered video of Daniel Pearl getting beheaded. For me, and many of us, I assume, this was the first time that we witnessed with our own eyes the brutality and cruelty mankind can inflict on one another. Intentionally, methodically, slowly, face to face, with your hands. This wasn't like watching grandma pass away or your dog pass away. This was the dark side of humanity. This is what we can do with our big monkey brains and creativity, we can find creative ways to hurt each other. Daniel Pearl's alleged executioner in a Guantanamo Bay interrogation would later exclaim, I decapitated with my blessed right hand, the head of American Jew, Daniel Pearl. And I'm digging in and I'm laying it on heavy because it was heavy. I personally will never forget. I'll never forget the look on Daniel's face. I'll never forget the knife. I'll never forget how everything seemed to move in slow motion and the pit in my stomach as I watched the life leave his eyes and that pit of emotion turning into rage shortly after. It may have been the first time I ever realized there were people in this world who hated me just for being me, wanted to chop my fucking head off, paraded around for recruitment video. This is one of my core memories. It's a point in my life that defines so much of what I believe. For me, it changed what it meant to be an American. We weren't Republican Americans or Democrat Americans or European Americans or Latin Americans or African Americans. We were Americans. From that day on, it was settled in my eyes. This was America. We were Americans. And this is the greatest human experiment that has ever been conducted on planet Earth. The largest melting pot, the world's cultures, in one place, trying to make it work, sometimes successfully and sometimes unsuccessfully. But sadly, that party, Americans in this together up against the great existential threat of Islamic terrorism, not everyone was invited to that party. 1,744 miles away from me, a young American man, soccer star and academic Simran Jeet Singh, his life would change forever as an American. Simran is a Sikh. Uh, you may have heard it pronounced as Sikh or Sikhi is another way some people pronounce. It's an Indian religion originating out of the Punjab region of India, whose male practitioners are particularly identifiable because of their turbans, their beards, and their bracelets. So as a young American, young Simran was also confused like the rest of us of what this meant on the day of 9-11. But to his mother, who with his father had fled India during a persecution of six over there, she knew all too well what this meant. And she raced down to his school, picked him and his brothers up and drove them home and locked the door. And from that day until honestly, probably his final day here on earth as an American, as a brown skinned, turban wearing, bearded American sick, his life was altered. He went from looking different, maybe being an oddity or curiosity or something you're not familiar with, to 
mistakenly being identified as the symbol of the enemy of America in an instant. Within the first month of 9-11, there were 300 reported cases of violence against Sikhs, who, by the way, have nothing to do with the religion of Islam. Not that that justifies violence against Islamic Americans. I'm just pointing out that within the first month, six were targeted. And 10 years after 9-11, a survey conducted in the very progressive and open-minded San Francisco Bay Area, 69% of sick children reported being bullied and harassed for their appearance, and 30% of sick children reported being physically attacked just for something to do with their religion. And for young Simran, especially, in that situation, he learned one of the great realities and pains and joys of being a human. We are tribal animals. We have in-groups, we have out-groups, and as good as it feels to belong, that thing that we're all hoping to be a part of, it feels equally horrible to not belong. And to explain why Simran's experience, wisdom, which comes from learning how to be a devout Sikh, while also being treated horrifically by his fellow Americans, neighbors, and peers, I'd like to tell you a bit about the Sikh faith. The Sikh is a newer religion. It started about 500 years ago. The faith was started by the first of 10 living gurus, Guru Nanak, in Punjab region of India. And one of the first major moments for the first guru, Guru Nanak, was he refused a blessed cord that would mark him as one of the higher castes in society. And this kind of starts one of the core principles of the Sikh religion, which is about equality. Equality between the rich and the poor, equality between men and women, and especially to end corruption. It's a religion of love, humanism, and oneness, and it's marked by your actions. Sikhs try to avoid the empty ritualism of other religions, they don't believe in renouncing the world and retreating to the forests and getting all spiritual in the mountains, but by living righteously in this world, where you are, where your feet are right now. In Guru Nanak's words, truth is the highest virtue, but even higher still is truthful living. Essentially, if you want the Sam translation of that, it doesn't matter how kind and patient you are on your spiritual retreat. If you come back and you treat the waitress or the barista, or your server, or your bartender, like trash. And six have uh, not had an easy time since they've been here for these 500 years. As a new religion in an area dominated by Hindus and Muslims, they've been persecuted a lot. They've had several genocidal events in their homeland and abroad. And Simran explains at one point that because they have had to fight to protect their existence and their peace, a good Sikh is both a soldier and a saint, which touches on one of my own personal core truths, which is, if your spiritual practice cannot incorporate and deal with the entirety of the human experience, good and bad, beautiful and horrific, what you have is a fun pastime, not a real way of life to get through this crazy odyssey we're on. His book, The Light We Give, and the conversation was a spark for me. I've since listened to I think about eight hours of lectures from other six and I've just been enjoying the deep dive and want to appreciate him for starting this conversation. But if you haven't gathered, by the length of this intro, I could just keep going on and on, but I'll let Simran tell you about his story himself. And it's all to say that Simran's experience as a practicing Sikh 
learning to love and to feel oneness with the world while also being seen and treated as an outsider in America. That duality coming together, I think it's led to some pretty amazing wisdom to share. Here is my conversation with Professor Simran Jeet Singh. Simran, hello. Hi. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. This was a, a bit of a surprise to me. I saw your book on my mother's coffee table <laughs> and was kind of thumbing through it. And then my mom said, oh, you should have him on, on your show. And I, I looked at the cover and I was like, yeah, I should definitely have him on my show. It's a bit of a, a funny inroad. So I, I read the cover, How Sick Wisdom Can Transform Your Life. And I thought, this is great. You know, we'll have a theological discussion about the sick faith. I have a, a horrible confession to you, which is that in my own personal life, I am obsessed with the culture war. So, <laughs> so That's a real confession. Yeah. yeah. And so I will listen to the most radical leftist, communist, neo-Marxist mm. lecture. And then I will listen to the most nationalist conservative America first MAGA yeah, and just let them just battle in my mind. And this show, we have gone to great lengths to keep it as apolitical as possible. I like, I just, because I think it's, it's everywhere and I'm a college dropout. I'm not me spouting off my political opinions. is not going to be helping the world. I don't, <laughs> right? I don't think. And so uh, when I first dove into your book, I started the, you know, my heart started to thump as I saw here citations. I go, uh Oh, the culture war has found me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very honored to have you. Thank I'm you. So grateful you. for your time and to have somebody who's studied their personal faith so deeply. Because yeah. there's a big difference between a practicing Christian and then a Christian who does the theology. Right. right, right. So I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have you on. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here with you. I start the show the same way every single time. Simran, who are you? Oh man, that's a real, that's a real question. I mean, da dad is probably first. I have two little girls. I mean, both in terms of my own identity, but also where my time goes, especially during the pandemic. That's how I would describe who I am. Um, it, in some ways, it depends on who asked me the question and it comes up a lot. Like, who are you in, in some way? And usually they're, they're referring to my turban. And so my gut reaction in terms of how I want to answer that question is like, be like, Hey, I'm a normal person just like you. And part of the strange aspect of Answering that, is there something implicit in my own understanding of, hey, this person's asking me because they don't think I'm normal. And so I want to resist that for this conversation because this is not that kind of conversation and just sort of speak about who I like, how I see myself. That's someone who is hopeful about the world, someone who believes in the good of people but also doesn't want to be around people all the time. I found out recently I'm more of an introvert than I realize. Like I like people and I like being around people, but I also like my own time, my own downtime. I love spending time with my family. That's probably like the most important thing to me. And then in a way, part of my identity and how I see myself is as a scholar. Like I'm trained as a historian, multiple different cultures and religions. I don't know how much I care about that. Like I spent a lot of my life doing that training and now I'm more focused on the current moment and how do we address some of our real divides that are pulling us apart. So there, there's something about me that's very pragmatic and connective. Like that feels really important to me in, in terms of who I am and what I want to do in this world. 
Yeah, one of the things that made me laugh in the book, you introduced yourself as a brown bearded turban wearing man at one point. Yeah. And that's very similar to the way I introduced myself, which is a teen dad, college dropout, ex-meth head. But it's yep, kind of, you know yep. it's kind of like the the barest minimum like yeah this exactly is, this will give you enough to go off of what my life has been and your life as a brown sick in San Antonio Texas is like I wondered when you said you know my first response was to say hey I'm just like you is that like when you think about yourself do you catch yourself feeling like I am different. Because, no. because you, in your early childhood, when you were first forming and growing, because you were visually different than the people around you. Yeah. You know, there's, there's this funny thing. So I've lived, I grew up in Texas, born and raised 22 years. And then I've lived in New York City for like the last 15. And one of the funny things I've noticed about myself recently is if someone from Texas asks me where I'm from, I say New York. If someone from New York asks me where I'm from, I say Texas. Like I, I always want to be like a little bit subversive and yeah. and it's something similar about your question which is i have this if someone sees me as different i want to be like hey i'm like you but if someone says hey you're just like us i'm like no no i'm different so <laughs> contrarian that, uh, <laughs> contrarian yeah and i'm not like the kind of person who's contrarian for the sake of it but there's something in me that i think this is part of my training in a way i don't like to be put into a box and i think part of my resistance to being categorized is that so much of my life, people have made assumptions about who I am and usually they're wrong. And usually that has really negative consequences for people who look like me. I get part of it is like, I think a defense mechanism. Like if somebody says, oh, you're from New York, you're just like us. I'm like, actually, I'm a little bit different than what you think I am. And don't, don't put me into this category. But part of it is as an educator, I want to help challenge people's assumptions and stereotypes. So there is something I think equally subversive in saying, I'm just like you to people who are like, I have nothing in common with this guy. Like this guy is violent or misogynistic or a terrorist or whatever. I want them to have to deal with my existence as being in relationship to theirs in some way. I I would follow that up by saying, I I think that when we even are confronted with the, the violence and brutality of humanity, we have to confront the fact that we are that too. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, in my meth addiction, I had to face my own brutality when my inhibitions were lowered and I was put in higher stake situations and dangerous situations and, you know, caused great bodily harm to somebody who was a perceived threat to me. It changed the way I look at the horrors of humanity. I think Mm. in a way, when you do it yourself with your own hands, which most people thankfully don't have to experience, but I, I had that unique experience that I think other, other people have had too. maybe um, soldiers or something where you're like, wow, I am, I am capable of all of that as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of the weird thing about being human. Like we tell ourselves constantly that we're better than we think we are. Like we're dishonest with ourselves. Maybe as a way to say, it. like, I'll, I'll give you an example of what comes up for me so often. Actually, there's a story I've never told, but it was, it was actually a really strange and tough experience for me. So one of my favorite comedians growing up was Norm Macdonald. And about 10 or so years ago, in the case of a, of a sick kid getting bullied and the kid fought back, I tweeted something about it and Norm Macdonald responded and he was like, violence is never the answer. Violence is always wrong. And I was like, oh man, how do I deal with this like celebrity who I've always admired growing up because he's hilarious, but he has a different opinion than me. And like, he doesn't have the same experience, but like, I believe this kid has the right to defend himself. And so I responded to his tweet and was like, you know, that might be 
I didn't say it in this way, but essentially like is your privilege talking like you don't, you're not in this situation. You can talk about being nonviolent, but like what are you going to do if somebody actually attacks you or your kid? Are you going to say don't defend yourself? So we, we went in a little back and forth and disagreed and it was very sad for me because I'm trying to run the simulation. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, I can, I can probably see where that went. Yeah. And I, I mean, it was sad for me because I was like, man, I want this guy to like me, whatever, but we disagreed and, and he was pretty firm in his view. And, and to me, like the logic in my head, like let's, let's extrapolate this out to people in general. Like everyone will say, at least in our society today, everyone will say, I don't believe in violence. I'm nonviolent. And you say, well, what do you do if you're walking down the street and someone hits you? What do you do if someone's on top of a kid? I mean, you just like run through these and, and then you say, okay, maybe you're not as whatever you think you are. I think there's, there's something really strange about our commitment to seeing ourselves in certain ways sometimes, like believing that we are something without actually ever knowing or engaging or exploring who, who we actually are. So anyway, it's a bit of a, a tangent, but it's something that I think about a lot in terms of sometimes how committed we become to things without really knowing who we are in relation to them. I understand the draw to being staunchly nonviolent, especially where a lot of the, like the heroes of the civil rights practice nonviolence and Gandhi mm -hmm. and, and Dr. King, but the conditions really do have to be right mm -hmm. for that to mm -hmm. work. I think the way it works best is as the way Gandhi put it is for you to be a mirror to their own brutality, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the ability for your persecutor, to have a moment to self-reflect of how brutal they're being. I think that it works. But in, in more cases than not, I also do believe that like peace has to be enforced. Oh, it is not, oh. I spend time in nature and I teach young men and women outdoor skills. And if you spend enough time in nature without rations and you're trying to figure out like, how would I actually survive in nature and what is nature like? Peace is a very unusual occurrence. <laughs> right? Yeah. And it's tough though. It's tough because we are, we all have so little time that it's, it's much easier for us to talk in, in platitudes, right. And to just have like these simple responses, but life is very complex. Yeah. Just for the audience member, just for the listener that isn't going to get a chance to, to read your book or to do a deeper dive on being sick. And for the audio listeners, I think you may have heard of it pronounced seek, but through your book, I learned I had been pronouncing it wrong. What is the the general, how would you describe the faith? If I, if I had to boil it down into a couple of sentences, I would say that Sikh philosophy offers three basic principles for finding happiness in your life. The first is a sense of oneness, finding a connection with the world around you. The second is learning to feel that connectedness, which we would refer to as love, like living with love. And the third is service, really engaging with the world around you as an act of love. And I think when those three pieces are in unison, then then your life is completely different. I mean, I've, I've experienced that myself. And it's, I, I guess, part of what really attracts me to the tradition and at least the philosophy, right? It's, it's that anybody can do those three things. You don't have to be a prophet or a guru or some like superhero, right? It's, it's available to all of us and it can transform our day-to-day -day experiences. How does the faith historically begin? What's its creation, or not, I guess, not the faith's creation story, but what's the, the faith's creation moment in human history? Um, it started about 550 years ago in South Asia, a region of Punjab, which is now Northern India and modern day Pakistan. And the short of it is in this period, there's, there's a lot of mixing 
of different kinds of people. This is an area where cultures really come together. And during this time, the influx of different cultures coupled with the inability to deal with difference creates all sorts of social hierarchies and oppression and and real suffering for people. I think that context is what really laid the foundation for the Sikh tradition. I think that's why there's such an emphasis on rejecting social hierarchy and insisting that everyone shares the same light. Everyone deserves equal dignity. Everybody deserves to be treated with respect. No one is better than anyone. I mean, these are really simple ideas in many ways, right? Like this is what we teach our kids, our young kids. I mean, they, they can understand it, but back then, and even now here in America today, we don't, we don't actually live this way. And so the teaching of the tradition, I think is, is beautiful in its simplicity to say, how do we, how do we flip the script and get to a place where we have actual equality for all people? How do we get to a place where we actually treat one another with love? It's really focused on instilling these values into people and changing behaviors in ways that will create happiness for everyone and everyone can thrive. Was it the rejection of the caste system that that made them so threatening to, was that why they were persecuted? There were many forms of social hierarchy, caste being the most dominant one, but gender was another one. Gender inequality was a huge issue in South Asia and continues to be. I mean, there and around the world, and the Sikh Guru said, There's like, what's going on here? Like, why are you treating these people as if they're not people? Religious difference was another major issue among people, regional. I mean, India is incredibly diverse even now. So all of these aspects, and I mean, we do this all the time as humans. If you look at history, any form of difference quickly becomes weaponized as a way to put people down and pull yourself up. And and the gurus were very much focused on finding a framework that gets that gets rid of that kind of division. A wave of persecution is what caused your parents to relocate to San Antonio. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, they, they came just before, Okay, but it was, things were, temperature was rising. It was, it was getting pretty heated then. I mean, part of, part of my family story, and this is true for many Punjabi Sikhs is in the forties when India and Pakistan were partitioned, received independence from the British, there was a mass migration that was the largest in human history. The death toll for that was in the millions. I mean, it was brutal. And so that's that's part of my parents' lived experience. And then in the 70s and 80s, as things started to get intense and the tensions became escalated across religious difference in India, yeah, I mean, people people saw that and they knew what could happen. And my parents luckily came just before things really hit. But yeah, I think I think that familial memory of both what happened in the 40s and then the violence that ensued just after my parents left. I mean, I think that put us in. It changed the way that my parents, but also us as kids, really saw ourselves. Like in some ways, people come up to me all the time and they're like, man, your life in the U.S. must be so hard. Like you deal with racism every day. I'm like, yeah, but it's not that hard compared to what my parents and grandparents survived. So like I'm, it's perspective, right? It's all relative, but that's part of what helps me feel grounded and not go, get so lost in, in the challenges that I face here in America. So we both grow up Americans in the nineties, prosperous time, action movies are, are, the, are the best, <laughs> incredibly peaceful. And our stories have a shared memory that we experience very differently, which is September 11th, 2001, the World Trade Center towers come down. I remember it. 
I remember getting woken up. Uh, we were on Pacific time, so it was before school started. I remember getting woken up. My mom said, you should probably come see this, seeing the towers come down and just almost not being able to comprehend what mm. was happening. And then we went to school. School was not canceled in our school. So then we, we were all just, everybody's just kind of like staring at each other like, what does that mean? Mm. Like, what's happening now? You experienced it as, and I remember the papers writing about Sikhs being misidentified as Muslims mm. and being targeted for attack. And that was your experience, which you write in depth in the book about. And it's interesting that like this single event shakes up our lives so differently. Like for me, it was without a doubt the start of um, probably never being able to be completely free of some smear of Islamophobia for the rest of my life. Mm. Like that's probably the realistic and it, it's embarrassing to say out loud mm -hmm. as somebody who mm -hmm. wants to be seen as tolerant, but there will always be that scar of the, the teenage boys like myself. We watched every beheading video mm -hmm. that was aired mm -hmm. and the propaganda machine was in full effect. Mm -hmm. And that was our adolescent diet of media was the, the war on terror. Mm -hmm. And that there was this existential threat to us. And so I've really tried to, to be conscious of that. I've, you know, I, I try to be conscious of that because it, it's so much more prevalent than some of the other prejudices I might have because it was just like a core memory of mine. And to you, I imagine in a very different way, the same, where all of a sudden your neighbors and people that are around you are no longer safe. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to think of like there, there's the story I tell in the book, and as as you're speaking, there's more surfacing to my memory. The part that that I remember well that I write about is, you know, we we watched the towers go down. Like you, I mean, didn't really understand what was happening. I mean, let alone the magnitude of it. Just the the idea that there could be an attack on American soil. Like, I don't know if it had ever really occurred to me. Right, like that was what we read about in our history books about. Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Stuff like that. Like it wasn't, it wasn't in our lifetime. It wasn't in the realm of possibility and in, in my head. But in addition to that, like when they, as we were watching and we, I was in my history teacher's classroom with some friends and as we watched the towers go down and then they show the image of bin Laden as the primary suspect, like I knew in that moment that my life wouldn't be the same. In fact, I, I don't write about this part either. But earlier when we were in passing period and somebody first mentioned that there was an attack in New York, I, I made a joke like, oh man, I hope they weren't wearing turbans, which like isn't funny, especially given what actually happened. But it indicates at least to some degree, like I knew what it would mean for me if I was somehow affiliated with these people in the minds of Americans. So yeah, I mean, life changed pretty swiftly for us, not because... We hadn't dealt with racism, of course we had, but because the intensity of it just escalated. Part of what was strange for me, and that this is something we we might have in common to some degree, is I actually didn't really know any Muslims growing up. There weren't there weren't many in San Antonio at the time. My my babysitter when I was younger was a Muslim woman and her family was cool, but she made us eat spaghetti with ketchup when we were growing up. So like <laughs> that, that if like if you're talking about like negative perceptions of like maybe that was the only one that I had was like oh man my babysitter made us eat spaghetti with ketchup but probably also like like many other Americans like some of what I heard 
like I wasn't immune to the propaganda machine. Maybe is maybe a way to say it. Not Muslim. I didn't know Muslims. There's this like difficult history among Sikhs and Muslims and Hindus historically in India. Like there, there was a lot for me to parse too. But I think part of what has helped me both in terms of dealing with my own internalized Islamophobia from that period and also like in my journey since then has been the experience of knowing that other people around the country were going through the same kind of harassment and hate violence and racism that I was experiencing. Like that made me feel closer to Muslims, even though, again, I didn't know any, but I was like, oh, those people are my people because at least they get my life. Unlike my many friends who, who are sympathetic and helpful, but like they'll never know what it's like to be in my skin. So that sort of experience of sharing difficulty together, even among people I've never met like that, they created a sort of bond that has continued for the last, what, like two decades since nine 11. Wow. And yeah, you and the turban are inseparable. Right. right so right. I had a friend in middle school who was Iranian. They called themselves Persian and mm-hmm. they were mm-hmm. fully assimilated Americans. You right. Know? right. So we felt very protective of them, but they, they were, completely within the, you know, uh, Omid was just one of us. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And it's, there's so many different conflicting feelings that come up with that. Cause at first you go, Oh my gosh, that's so unfair that you were misidentified as a Muslim. And then you go, well, wait a second. Why? Yeah, that's so terrible that Muslims then in America were also getting right the brunt right, of right. it. And then you can only think about the complete amount of fuckery that has happened mm-hmm. in their countries all the way back to the Soviets right, right. Uh, in Afghanistan. And then the turmoil that's happened in Iraq and Iran to cause this wild cycle of violence that mm. we're, that we're in. And I think the death toll in the, between uh, even eliminating desert storm, I think a million people died in the middle East since U S occupation. So mm-hmm. it's a lot of fuel for the fire, yeah. so to say. The turban and the talk of the turban is obviously a point of interest, and I'm glad that you you cover it and, and talk about it. I think the way I related to it most is when you said it's a way for us to show the rest of the world our commitments mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the way we live. And I'd love to, to talk at one point in the book, this is probably my favorite moment in, in the book, sorry for a spoiler, you steal a candy bar. And your, <laughs> your mom catches you before you've actually, actually stolen it right, and right, right. pays for it and basically says, you should think about taking your turban off yeah. because that turban stands for something. I was wondering if you could just educate us listening. What, it, what is the ritual and meaning of the turban and how, how do you uphold its, the values that it stands for in your daily life? Yeah. I hate, I hate that you brought up that story. Cause it's like my, like one of my more shameful moments. I've I'd actually never told that story I'm glad uh, until I wrote it. that book. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I did too. I'm still pretty embarrassed by it. I mean, if it's anybody else, I'm like, Oh, you shoplifted as a kid. Like it's not the worst thing in the world. It's fine. I shoplifted as an adult, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's different when it's yourself. Right. Yeah. So, so the turban thing, I love what it means historically for six and, and there are a few different aspects of it. You know, the first is in South Asian culture and in a few cultures across South Central Asia, the turban was a symbol of royalty. 
So the kings, the kings wore turbans, and and the Sikh philosophy is that everyone's royal, and no one's better than anyone. And and what I love about the decision for Sikhs to start wearing turbans is that our leaders, the gurus, could have said, "Hey, kings, y'all should stop wearing turbans. Like you're no better than anyone else." But instead of pulling people down, they empowered people, and they said, "Hey, you all, you all are just as." important as the rest of these people, you, you start wearing turbans too. So it's like a really powerful, and I think I, I take a lot of wisdom from this, like the approach to empowering people as, as a form of activism and social progress. So I love, I love that element of it. One of the other pieces here in terms of the practice of tying a turban is that our memory traditionally is that the turban is a way for us not just to represent our commitment to our values, but also to be held accountable for them. And this is part of what my mom was getting at in the grocery store incident, where by tying my turban every day, I am telling myself, hey, if Sikhism teaches us that we live for justice and equality and love and service and whatever the core principles are, in addition to that, that you might want to name, if I believe in these elements and I'm wearing a turban, that I'm telling the world that I'm going to live by these principles. And in some ways, I mean, a lot of times people have come up to me and been like, man, that's, that's so hard. That must be so oppressive. Like, don't you just want to take it off? And I think what people often don't see is that for people who wear turbans or hijabs or other kinds of religious coverings, those experiences can be really liberating. What I mean by that is, and this has been true for me by committing every day. I mean, especially since that, that candy bar issue by being conscious of the fact that when I'm in public, I want to live by those values that I'm claiming that I'm becoming stronger every day. And it becomes easier for me to do the right thing in every moment. Like a muscle, like a muscle, right? Like you're just practicing every day. And of course that's how we get better. But the thing people don't see because we don't, typically think this way is that as those muscles get stronger, you are then leaving behind some of the attachments that make your life more difficult. That's what I mean when I say there's something liberating about it. Like you yourself can become free from some of what's holding us back in life. And I, I love that aspect of wearing a turban. I love that. I also, yeah, the second time you mention it, the candy bar story is the first time you mention it being a crown. And that, yeah. that also yeah, caught yeah. my interest. It's like, mm. oh, it's a crown. I am drawn to people who are called to something higher than just the standard material desires, pleasures of the body. And left to my own devices, I lean atheistic. When I first got sober, I was very, very spiritual when I was high because mm. uh, I was constantly in danger and constantly yeah. somehow... <laughs> do, doing okay. Right. Like, surviving. Surviving. Yeah, exactly. Like, whoa, I can't believe I made it out of that <laughs> trap house. You know, I just had a gun pointed at me. Thank you, God. <laughs> and, but left to my own devices, my, my intellectual mind loves to convince myself that I am responsible for all things in my world. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I am a very reluctant spiritual person who has become very spiritual just out of necessity, I would say. What happened is about four years into sobriety, I noticed that the people who chose to have a higher power and to be devout to their higher power we're just inarguably doing better than me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I have, I have one called the cosmic muffin 
that is my higher power. It, you know, we're part of interfaith and, you know, we get along well with other religions. But I am, I'm drawn to listen to people who decide to take on more responsibility and more discipline than comes standard in this life. And so when I hear the conservative Christians trying to uh, wait till marriage to have sex, I'm like, okay, tell me more. Like you're trying to elevate something mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And it's the same way when what happened is I was, I was dating somebody who had very passionately had studied Islamic studies in college. And so anytime I said something xenophobic about Muslims, which was not all the time, but you know, over the course of two years of us being together, a few, it, it was a problem. And I, I started generally what happens is uh, when I disagree strongly with someone, the way I tend to process that is I'll go listen to lectures from the most brilliant people of that group that I can find, which is why I end up listening to communists, you know, and why mm-hmm. I listen and it is because it, it's born of resentment and then proceeds to fuck up my ability to have any strong opinions, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's terrible. It's a terrible process <laughs> you know, where it's just the world just becomes so complex and nuanced that I really wish I could just go back to the way it was when I was like 21. Yep. Yep. But I fell in love with the, the way I, I was listening to an Islamic scholar and the moment that that faith touched me and it was no longer a curiosity. It was no longer about trying to be more compassionate because I've always been polite, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and it was not like the ugly bigotry you would see in like a movie. Right. You know, it was like soft bigotry. The moment that got me is when this imam was saying, you know, we pray multiple times a day in the way that we pray to fight the tyranny of self. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. got me because as an addict, that's my whole life. Yeah, it's a tyranny of self. I forget why I was listening to Cornell West, but something similar, you know, give a lecture. And he said, so many of us are in the joyless pursuit of pleasure. And that's me left to my own devices, Mm. the joyless pursuit of pleasure. I just want to eat the richest foods and have sex with as many people as I can Mm -hmm. and do as many drugs as humanly possible. And I fell in love with the the discipline of Islam. So what I did is I I downloaded a um, Muslim prayer timer and just thought, can I pray that many times a day? That's interesting. My own prayer. So it comes on, the chanting comes on. I have no idea what the chanting says, but that's my moment to just try and reconnect with every morning. I tend to write intentions for the day. Yeah. That's my moment to just take a time. Let's try and get right because I can pray, meditate, set intentions in the morning, call a couple of sick alcoholics, which is generally what I try to do every morning. And by noon, I'm insane again. Yeah. yeah. Um, And you settle back down. And I settle back down. Yeah. The, the thing that really caught me listening to your book about the sick faith was when you said that sick means actually means student. Mm-hmm. And it, re- it reminded me of the, a book club that I am a part of and, and is a part of this program. I'm a member, not a leader of the book club. My books rarely win the, the choosing <laughs> is when I discovered the root of discipline, sh- it shares it's discipulus. It's a Latin word. It shares the same root as disciple. Mm-hmm. And it kind of, as somebody who has always thought of discipline as, you know, kind of punitive and militaristic and, you know, hard on yourself, it really changed the way I look at discipline, which is, no, it's about learning. The discipline process is about learning. So for me, when I say I want to be disciplined, I want to learn how to be the best Sam I possibly can be. Yeah. Could you tell me about your journey 
through discipline and living a disciplined life. Like you, you wear the turban to show the world, I stand for a certain set of values. And immediately that opens you up to the worst thing you can be, which is a hypocrite. Yeah. Right? To fall yeah. short of your values. Yeah. Which is, I think, the benefit of the yarmulke, of the turban, of the maybe the cross that I think uh, doesn't always mean that you're a very disciplined person. Yeah. yeah but yeah. theoretically, that, that could mean that's what it stands for. There's a certain set of values. Tell us about your journey of learning how to be the best Simra. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll say I'm, I'm certainly not there yet, but I think part of, part of the challenge with religion and religious hypocrisy is so often we expect that by wearing a turban or by wearing a hijab or whatever, whatever we use to sort of claim a deep relationship with a tradition, we expect of ourselves perfection. And that bar is unrealistic. And, and quickly we're disappointed. We're like, I couldn't do that. There's no point in trying. And I mean, I find that in all, all forms of discipline, right? Like not religious, it's eating healthy or exercise or whatever. Like it's, it's easy to give up on yourself because you're like, I'm not, I'm not seeing anything happening. You know, in some ways, discipline was part of my upbringing. Right, like wearing a turban is a good example. I've worn one since I was a kid. It wasn't really a choice for me. I, I think like most Americans today, and at least those, go, those growing up in our generation, I was resistant at best. I didn't really see the value in it. It didn't feel like it made much difference in my life. Um, I didn't see how it was helping me or changing me. I think the real aha moment came for me when I was in grad school. So I'm like 23, 24, and I start running. And so this is not spiritual discipline. It's like just running. And I'd never really liked running. I, I ran cross country in high school as a soccer player. So running, like I had to do it, but I like running without a ball was like brutal for me. I just never enjoyed it. But at 23, 24, I start running, living in Boston at the time. Everybody there runs, it seems like. And I start training for a marathon. It would be my first. And part of what I noticed in training for the marathon, like I was starting to eat healthier. I was starting to be more efficient with my studies. I was, I mean, everything in my life was like improving and I couldn't figure out what was happening to me. Like why, why was everything all of a sudden, it's not like I didn't have difficulties in life. It just meant that I was better at dealing with my day-to-day -day commitments. Um, and, and part of what I came to realize was that the discipline of running was making me internally stronger so that I was doing, just making the right decisions. And it was easier to do that day by day. So to me, that's when I was like, oh, there's something different about discipline that's like not punitive or not retribution or not oppressive. I guess oppression is probably the word that I would use for my view on discipline up until then. Like I'm being forced to do something. Someone else is making the rules. And by following them, I'm basically just submitting to whatever they're making me do. Like they might benefit. What, what do I get out of this? And part of what I learned through running was like, no, nobody's, nobody's benefiting but me. And like, discipline isn't really for anyone else. I mean, maybe in the U.S. military, you might say, okay, the, the uniformity helps the military. But also, like, you can see in an institution like that one or others, when people submit themselves to be shaped, then they can transform. And I think that's yeah. what discipline enables. So that's, that's kind of what I learned through running that I then was able to start applying to my daily life and then particularly in the context of spirituality. Yeah, action is a very powerful alchemical property. I recently just hired a uh, CBT therapist. 
Mm. Very different. I've always worked with psychodynamic, psychoanalytic talk mm-hmm. therapy. Mm-hmm. Just the process of finding and hiring the therapist, I felt better. Interesting. Right? Like just that, that first step. And the same, you know, when a period of not working out happens and I get back to the gym, get back to moving my mammal yeah. body. There's yeah, something yeah. very powerful that happens just from starting. In recovery, we often say you can't think yourself out of bad thinking. You have to act yourself out yeah, of bad thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll give you I'll give you a quick example of this, which when COVID hit, we were in New York City in the middle of I mean, it was the epicenter of the time. We I mean, we worried for our family safety. We managed what we would could for a couple months. And then we were set, right? Like things were as good as they were gonna be, but we were still like engrossed in the worrying and we couldn't get out of that constant worrying. And we would talk about how we need to stop worrying so much, but like, how do you get out of that? Then we started acting. Like we started serving people who needed food and support and whatever. And it was that simple shift from thought to action that completely changed our experience of our lives in that moment. So it's just to your point about action being what actually changes things. Yeah. Service is the only thing that will stop my suffering or make me not suffer in that moment. Mm. It is the only thing. I, When I'm in existential dread, I need to find someone to help. That's so interesting. And it sounds like we share that, yeah. that value. One of the things I loved about learning more about the Sikh faith, or at least how you practice the Sikh faith, because I'm sure it's practiced many different ways. Right, right, exactly. Is that it really is value-based and virtue-based mm-hmm. and that there are principles. And that's something that I remember the first time I heard the word virtue, I was like 12. And someone said like, oh, yeah, it's not just patience, right? Patience is a virtue. It's like yeah. a whole library of these values humans can aspire to. And one of the great pains of my life, I, I found it funny when you said that, like, well, I'm not there yet. And I, you know, I think that's the, the beauty of ideals in a way is that they are greater than humans are capable of. Oh, oh. Uh, they are very much like a orientation. They're like the North Star. They can guide you. But just because you follow the North Star does not mean you'll ever get to the North Star. Right. right you'll right. never get to the North Star. It might just help you get to where you're going. You mentioned that you try to focus on five virtues. I forget the word that you use. I use virtue, but five virtues a day to kind of stay focused on. What have you been focused on lately? What are the ones that come to mind? Hmm. It's a good question. I mean, I'll say just briefly in response, the your, your point about living on the basis of values and seeing them as aspirations. It really can drive where you want to be. And I'll say today that I'm not where I want to be. And you ask me 20 years from now, and I hope I say the same thing, right? Like we're not going to become perfect. We're not going to become fully just or fully humble or fully whatever it is that we're aspiring towards, but we can get, become more humble. We can become more just, right? Like I think that's where I want to be like 20 years from now, I want to be able to say I've made progress here. So what are the ones that I've been thinking about more recently? Humility is probably the biggest one. And that's a constant for me, but I think I'm becoming more appreciative of its importance and also how difficult it is. I mean, there are challenges constantly. And this is not just, you know, humility like, hey, I am arrogant because I'm smarter than you or because I wrote a book or whatever. It's it's also like Harvard Master's, Columbia PhD. <laughs> well, all, yeah. All, <laughs> like leave leave aside all that stuff. It's also like, hey, my life matters more than this person's or like the world revolves around me in some way or like today 
is a day I need to focus. Like it's just about me today, right? Like those are such easy things to pull into and being really mindful of the different tricks we play on ourselves mentally. That's one that I've tried to become more and more aware of. So, so that's a big one for me. I've been, I've been thinking a lot more about service, which is another constant one, but the the particular way in which I'm trying to think about it is the intentionality behind the service. So not just what am I doing, but why am I doing what I'm doing? And what I'm, what I'm hoping to be better about is decentering myself in, in my service to other people. That requires more listening. It's a harder way to show up, to not come in thinking that I know better than you what you need, but like, hey, let me ask you, let me ask you what you, what you might need, which is not the way we typically approach activism or service in this country. So I'm pushing myself on that one a little bit more these days too. A third one is honesty. That comes to mind immediately for me right now. Honesty, particularly around, I'm a conflict averse person. And so, yeah, so I like typically won't say anything. And even in like my friendships and close relationships, if someone's doing something that I disagree with, which in many cases is like probably appropriate, but in some cases I'm like a little too passive to be like, hey, that's messed up. So being confident and assertive enough to say, Hey, like, let's, let's, let's talk about this thing. Yeah. I see that as a, as a form of honesty that I'm not particularly good at. That's an important one. It's, it's so hard. Yeah. It's like some combination of honesty and courage, but it's a a hard one for me. So those are, those are three that are are hitting me right away. But yeah, there's, there's always a lot to, to work on. There's a line in the book that you just like you just pass over it and i wrote it down it just felt like so important but there was no explanation after what it meant mm. but it seemed like a concept that had deeper meaning you wrote the inheritance of the body mm. do you remember what that passage means i mean i can tell you what i've i mean this is something that i've actually been thinking about recently as well so i remember what i was thinking when i wrote it i was thinking about our obsession with supremacy how many ways we develop to think of ourselves as being better than other people and, and in a way, we could, we could boil it down to a belief that we deserve more than other people. And, and so I, I heard this, I don't remember where I heard it, but I heard someone talking about the idea of deserving and, and they were, it was almost like a slap in the face. I, I really loved it. I mean, like a good <laughs> wake up slap in the face, I guess. But it was like a, Hey, what did you do to deserve all the gifts you have in your life? Like nothing. Like you think about what you have, like literally it's it's not of your own doing so that's what i mean by the inheritance of our bodies right like we were born don't deserve them we got them but they're they're gifts we've inherited them and so to stop thinking of our lives as some sort of meritocracy where like we are ahead of other people because of what we've done to deserve things i, I think that's so much of what's wrong with our world and so that's that's afraid that's what i was thinking when i shared that phrase Wow. Yeah, we are very lucky people to get to have a human experience and a human experience in this time mm-hmm. where beds are common, water is on tap, you know, at least here yeah. in Western countries, you know, like I have more in common with a medieval king than m- most humans throughout human history so ever had. Like yeah. I have hot water on tap. I have such an abundance of food. I have to worry about getting fat. Like I have a grocery store. I, I yeah, remember yeah. the part where your mom was, I wrote gratitude for the grocery store. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I thought, wow, I've never thought that. You know, I've never thought about how a grocery store could be such a meaningful place to someone. Because I hate shopping. I hate the anxiety of right, it. Right, 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 right. It is funny. I mean, the things we take for granted. I was talking to my cousin about this recently because she read the opening part of the book where I talk about our family's journey a little bit. We were, we we're sort of marveling at how unlikely it is, how unlikely it was that our family would end up with the kind of privilege that we have now. I mean, there's no, there's no way in hell when my family was in refugee camps two generations ago, my grandparents and their kids, my uncles and aunts and parents were sitting in refugee. Like, could they imagine something like this? I mean, grocery stores is like a nice example of like the, the, they would have never heard of a grocery store. At the time. Like it would have been a completely alien concept to them. And so it's, it's just, or that their descendant would go to the literally the highest echelons of education. Exactly. The, the, I mean, it's the greatest yeah. institutions in the world, probably. It's it's everything. I mean, it's just like, yeah, and it's so it's so hard to remember that sometimes because we get lost in our day to day lives and our problems. And to me, at least, there's an element of gratitude that just comes from daily awareness of yeah, we are lucky, and we didn't we like. It's not that we don't deserve this. In most likelihood, we probably shouldn't have even had this and we did nothing to move into a different kind of probability set, right? So there, there's a lot of gratitude that can come from recognizing that what we've inherited actually wasn't of our undoing. One of the things that I think about is maybe something that you've become good at. I watched a video of a little boy. I think he was reciting a talk he had heard somewhere. Mm. But he's saying, what you practice, you get good at. So if you practice being angry, you'll become a master. Yeah. And where a yeah. normal person might never get angry, you'll find a way to be angry. Mm. One of the things I was thinking about a natural, because of your commitment to wear the turban in America and to essentially always be seen as an outsider in most circles. One of the things I thought that you must have developed as a skill is this ability to, to reset when, when people meet you with strange, mean, cruel, or even, which I think might even be more hurtful, just inability to like see you, mm-hmm. you know, cause it's one, I think the explicit hate is awful, but at least you can go, that guy's got problems, yeah, yeah. you know, but just to walk into a room of uh, high functioning executives and for, to get treated differently, I imagine would, would sting worse. How have you developed the ability, if there's a way to share with us, the ability to, when something isn't going ideally, to kind of recenter quickly and to find your feet and to be as you aim to be in the world, somebody who is shining light and who is being courageous and brave, but also not acting out of cruelty? There's no single answer to this question. And being comfortable with the fact that like life is complicated, every situation is different and each situation, each challenge has its own answer. And that took me a while to really become comfortable with that I couldn't just sit in my room, come up with my plan and then show up and then like something gets hard and then I follow my plan and everything's fine. So I, I think part of what I've developed, one is in understanding that it's not personal. And that's that's hard to do in these situations because it affects you personally. The impact is personal. There's risk to your body, your person. So it's hard. It's hard to do that. But part of the question that I, I might ask myself in a situation like that is like, is this is this about me or is this about them? 
Like what's, what is, what's the root of this problem? And if it's about me, then maybe I need to look into my own behavior or what I've done and sort that out. But in a lot of cases, it has nothing to do with me. It's other people's problems, like their racism or their bigotry is their problem. I'm like, okay, they don't look They're going to have to figure out how to deal with that because they're going to make themselves miserable. That's one that has really served me well. The second is, is going back to this point around values and virtues. When we were kicked out of a roller skating rink, it's a story that I share I remember. In, in the book. When we were kicked out that evening, my father said, you can't control how people treat you, but you can control how you respond. And that's been something that I've held on to for a long time. And so in these situations, one, one of the points that I would make is when people are tough and shitty and whatever, part of what you can do is be like, okay, they are who they are. Who am I? And what are my values? And how am I going to respond with those values in mind? And, and again, there's no single answer, but you might say, okay, I want to be loving in response to this. What does love look like in this situation? And sometimes it might be you reach out to them and sometimes it might be you ignore them. It's a question you can ask yourself. What does service look like in this situation? Is it getting them help? Is it talking to them and educating them? Is it walking away, right? Like they can look different in different contexts. So that's a, that's a second practice that I think is applicable to people of all, of all backgrounds and in all contexts. Um, and, and the third that can be a little trickier um, in these situations is to the point that I was making before of like going to your room and concocting a formula I don't advise that. Like, that's not going to be so helpful. But part of what's been helpful to me is working through scenarios and imagining you're in a position like this. Your Somebody imagination helps you? <laughs> <laughs> and then just preparing yourself and saying, here's how I want to respond when this kind of thing happens. And nothing's going to happen exactly as you imagine it. Yeah. But if you're just thinking through, here's what I would want to do in a situation like this, then when the moment comes, I mean, that's really helped me to prepare for those moments. And, and I've, I've found myself to be more proud of how I've handled those situations when I've prepared for them. One of the things I've gathered by talking to you here is that you do believe in self-defense, right? Which is what you got into the fight with, with Norm Macdonald. And <laughs> a, as somebody who is genuinely at risk to be attacked by people that you don't know, how do you honor that commitment to come home to your daughters? You know, part of the Sikh teaching is that we're all supposed to be warriors. And the, the tradition is, we refer to ourselves as sansibais, saints and soldiers. And the, the commitment is you work on yourself from the interior while you help serve the community around you and you ensure justice. And so, so our philosophy is when you are in situations where self-defense is required, it's fair. Go for it. I haven't been in one of those situations in a long time. I mean, I share, I share some stories in the book where I fought and a couple of them... I didn't feel completely proud of my response, not because of my resorting to violence, more because the reason animating that violence, I don't mm. think was just or that it needed to be to the level that I took it. Like, I don't think my heart was in the right place necessarily in some of those situations. But there are other moments in my life, especially in sports and on the soccer field where people have attacked me uh, and I fought back. I don't, I don't feel bad about that at all. I don't think you should. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's not just in, in moments of racism. I remember a fight I got into with some neighbors when we were playing basketball and they were just being jerks, like, and they started hitting us first. And I was like, I'm going to hit you back. Yeah. And like, I was, I'm, I'm fine with that. Like, and I would teach my kids the same thing. So I, I, I'm not 
it's a weird thing, right? Like I'm not here to say I'm pro-violence, but I'm also not here to say that I would not like there, there are situations in which I would condone violence. And that's, that's part of our tradition. And I think for the most part, even those who would say otherwise, many of them when, when pushed further, right? Like, do you think the U S was right to intervene during the Holocaust? I think people, most people would say yes. So like, what, what does that say about our, and anyway, I, I know we've, we've sort of yeah, covered some of this before. It gets really tough. Really it, gets, yeah, it gets complicated. Yeah, it feels easy position. at the Holocaust, but then finding that line. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, is incredibly tough. Yeah. And, and so part of our tradition is we should always be ready to stand up for justice. And so that's being in shape is part of it being, we carry a kirpan with us, a, a small dagger, just like I have this bracelet. Like that's one of our articles of faith. <laughs> that's awesome. And so that's, that's part of who we are. Is it, is it usable as a dagger? Some six wear it as something that's usable and some six don't. And depending yeah, I carry on a context, knife too. I believe yeah. in mechanical advantage of worst comes to worst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's part of our, that's part of our tradition. And not just theologically, but also historically. That's that's who our people have been. Yeah. The six have been through several kind of genocidal type events, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think, I mean, in a way, like this, this might sound a little bit strange to the ear, but I'll talk through it for a moment. In a way, um, I feel really proud of the fact that we are attacked for how we look, and what what I mean by that is. We are in many ways by design on the front lines of bigotry. Like if somebody's going to be attacked, it's going to be us because of how we choose to look. And that's not just true here in the States. That's been true in South Asia, historically true too. Right. And, And the tradition is you don't, you don't hide from your commitments. And when there are oppressive rulers, we'll be the ones who stand up to them and then we'll be attacked. I mean, that's what we're seeing happen in India right now as well. Is there Um, modern conflict happening right now? Modern, I mean, the... The right wing, the, the leadership in India right now is right wing. Some of the staunch, staunchest opposition has come from the six in Punjab. They just had a massive protest the last couple of years, got really tough with the violence that was coming down from the government. And, and part of the reality becomes for us, push comes to shove and we can't really hide because of how we look. Like we yeah. stick out like sore thumbs because of our identity. But that makes me really proud because it means... We're living by those values that we're claiming and we are standing up for not just ourselves, but other people who are marginalized. And to me, that's, that's the best of religion when we look at it, right? Like it's not about you. It's about justice. It's about making this world better. It's about making people's lives better. Uh, and so I, again, I'm really, I'm really proud of that aspect of our faith. That's beautiful. And I, I love the, the nuance of it because I think it is something that often gets overlooked in the spiritual circles is the the reality that we are strange, cruel, naked apes, you know, at times and capable of, of great violence, much more than in the animal kingdom, because we can imagine how to hurt, hurt each other. You know, we torture and maim and do awful (laughs) things. We get creative. And it's one of the things that I, as my son is stepping into manhood, I mean, he's 13 and that's the conversations that we're having is, you know, I don't want to call you boy anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to call you kiddo anymore. I want you to earn place amongst, you know, I don't think that your biological sex, like, I don't think by being born a man, uh, you become a man, I guess is how I'm mm-hmm. saying. Mm-hmm. And I'm working my way around finding some sort of distinction 
into what to call them. And I'm very early phases, but I think I, I would call it an ash man, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. which I'll get into later. People don't worry. But <laughs> one of the things that we are doing is we are going to the gym every morning at five mm-hmm. and he is getting strong. And it's because I refuse to tell him what to believe. I believe that he should do what I did, which is to listen to the far left and the far right and the authoritarian and the libertarian and, and figure out for himself, what do you believe? Mm-hmm. I don't want to interfere with that process except for to tell you what how I came to my beliefs. Yeah. So we recently listened to pro-lifer and pro-choicer, what I could find what I could think of as the most competent minds on those topics and I said what what do you think hearing both these thoughts? And he has a different opinion than I do. Yeah. Regardless of that is um I was very small and weak up until high school. So to give him this opportunity to build his body strong and to it's you will have values and you will have ideals and things that matter to you. I hope you always have strength in your, like if you're strong, your values will always have strength in their corner. Mm. And that is important. That's great. I love that. Yeah. Now I'm thinking about my own girls who are much younger and how do I, as, as they mature, how do I ensure that these principles that we're teaching them are, are then complemented by other aspects of their life that also need to be there as they grow. That's really, that's really great. Yeah, it's an ugly truth of life. There's a Chinese proverb, if you want peace, prepare for war. (laughs) It's sad, but we are not in a utopia and we will never be in a utopia. So just managing how to have the the most amount of peace and kindness that we can have in this existence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a line in your book. I'll I'll let you go soon here enough, but there's a couple lines that I have to touch. And one was set fire to any practice that takes you away from love. Mm. Very similar to a Christian teaching, you know, if your left hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Right, right, right. What are some of the examples where you felt like you had to act that out and you had to get rid of something that you loved for the greater love? You know, get some, get rid of something that mattered to you for the ability to love. Yeah. So it comes, it comes from Guru Arjan, the fifth Sikh guru. The original line is, Jalo asirit jitme piara visare. Right. It's essentially about distractions, right? Like what are you what are you occupying your mind with that's taking you away from the stuff that matters? And I think for for everything, part of part of what sick philosophy teaches is like you shouldn't feel bad about enjoying life. Like life is to be enjoyed. The challenge becomes when you're unable to find balance and ensure that you are enjoying life and also focused on the things that matter. Um, one of my imbalances uh, in this regard is uh, sports. Like I love sports. I watch them. And then unnecessarily for like two years, I was just listening to like in my free time, I was just listening to podcasts, not watching (laughs) sports. I'm not playing sports. I'm like listening to people analyze. I mean, it's like the whole sports center culture, right? Like who cares? I would be absorbed in it and get caught up in the drama of it. But like, did I really care? No. Like it was it enriching my life in any way. No. But like sometimes you just get sucked in and you don't realize you got sucked in. And so it was like a couple years in where I was like, I need to get off some of this stuff. Not sports entirely, but like the podcast stuff, like that's out. Even I mean, I like the people I was listening to. They were funny. They were entertaining. But like, why am I listening to that stuff when I could be spending that time with my kids or I bet your wife is listening to something more enriching, you know, on my commutes, for example, just like I'm just passing time and I'm not enjoying life. I'm not learning anything. All I'm doing is just like distracting myself. So I think to me, that's that's how I think about that that teaching, really focusing on what what is taking me away from the stuff that matters. And distraction is probably the best way to think about it for me. It's a beautiful line. 
I'm interested in following you and, and I would love to know if you're writing, especially more articles or books about what it means to be a sick in America. Where, where do you post this stuff? Where do we find more of, of what you're doing and what you're up to? Oh, uh, I spend way too much time online. So Twitter, I'm Simran, S-I-M-R-A-N. Uh, on the other platforms, I'm SikProf, S-I-K-H-P-R-O-F. And uh, my website is SimranJeetSingh.org. How has your meditations, let's call it, on being a disciplined person, how has that acted itself out of you trying to get a little bit closer to the person you want to be? I think part of what's really shifted is you know, part of what I describe in the book is I'm, I'm more aware of those things. And I think that's always step one, just like acknowledging that you have a problem, right? That's what we learn. And so becoming aware is, is step one, but then figuring out how to take action, it can be really paralyzing. And so a really simple step that I've developed for myself that I think is easy for anyone is just to say, what can I do today to become more X, Y, Z, Right. To become more loving, to become more honest, to become more fearless, to become more creative, right? Like whatever it is that you're aspiring for, like give yourself a particular time frame, a particular practice. For me, it's daily. Figure out what would work for you. And that is the incremental step towards massive transformation. That to me has really been a signal shift in terms of becoming closer to who I want to be. Learning the art of discernment. Yeah. Of yeah, being yeah. able to make a plan and make action and take action. Yeah. I won't make you respond to this, but I will say a beautiful line that I just want captured in this conversation is when we betray our values, we weaken the trust we have in ourselves. Yeah. And I think that's a really beautiful lesson and a really good lesson in why you should learn who you are. Because I've known men that can play the field and date lots of women at once and it doesn't seem to affect them. And I know men that when they try to do that, they feel very sick. Yeah. And they want to be the, the playboy. But, and I just thought that was a beautiful line. Mm, thank you. Another one. And then I'll ask you the final question is you write knowledge without action is hypocrisy. And that's one of the great lessons that I'm learning now after 10 years of not 10, eight years of like really seriously seeking and looking for knowledge and looking for wisdom. You get to this awkward point where you realize that you've learned a lot, but you're not doing what you've learned. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. you can't do a fraction of what you've learned. And so I've differentiated it between knowledge and embodied knowledge. And what mm -hmm. you get your body to do is your embodied knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. That's a nice way to put it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it echoes what's the line in the Bible is faith without works is dead. Yes. Yeah. It's the same. It's the same. It's the same idea, right? Like you can have it inside of you, but if you don't put it into action, it really makes, I mean, literally makes no difference. So yeah, I, I feel that intensely now, especially, I mean, this awareness that we have, that we have more knowledge at our fingertips than ever before, but we're not in a great, <laughs> we're not in a great position. So there, there's something that's missing in, in our calculus and, and in terms of what our society prioritizes. And I think it's, how do you, how do you put your values into action? Like we, we don't really know how to do that. We never learn it. Remember being an American in the nineties where that it was literally just like, yeah, knowledge was the solution. Once everyone. Knowledge has, is power. Yeah. yeah. Nope. <laughs> so you've been really generous with your time and I'm going to let you go. This is the last question that I have for you. I'm going to put it a little bit morbid, but I'm going to pull on your, uh, your fatherly heartstrings <laughs> to get the best answer I can out of you. Yeah. If for whatever reason you weren't, uh, able to make it home, 
you got hit by a bus or your, your plane crashed on, on your way back to New York to see your daughters. And uh, we had this recording of your last message. What would you want that message to be to tell them what you think is most important to remember in each moment about being a great human? Reese gets in contact with your wife and he says, hey, we have this last recording. Yeah. You know, do you want it? I mean, yeah, it's, it's, this is a tough one. You, my wife and I have been talking about this quite a bit recently, and I, I think it's part of the challenge of living in New York, but it's, it's the challenge of living anywhere, which is we're so driven towards a particular form of success, and it's not necessarily tied to happiness. And so I'd, I'd, I'd say to my kids, like, be discerning about what happiness looks like and how to get there as opposed to everything else that society tells you. Yeah. And, and really think about long-term sustainable happiness, not those fleeting moments. And I you know to me, a lot of that comes from how you look at the world, how you look at yourself, how you look at people and then, and then the service piece of it, right? Like giving, giving is, is what really I think sustains people. And I, I, I have found immense joy in a life of service and I would want them to know that too. Thank you, Simran. Thank you for your time. Yeah, of course. This is awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the How To Human podcast recorded at Square One Studios in San Anselmo, California. If you'd like more of these episodes, if you'd like us to keep going, keep reading all the books so we can interview amazingly, keep taking the time to write and produce inspiring introductions, and also join us in a community-like area where we hang out read books together in a book club, and have other future community events, please remember you can support us financially, and that's actually the only way we make any income from the show. We don't do ads. We don't do partnerships with other companies. We hope that the listeners feel inspired to continue the show themselves and, and really join us and be a part of it. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash howtohuman. You can join for any amount, and we will see you at our community events that we have there. You can also write us a review on iTunes, and of course, the best free way to support us besides writing that review is to share us with your friends. Help us keep growing, expand our audience, and then as our listenership grows, we will find more and more people who are in a financial place to support the program. But... The program will always remain free on iTunes and Spotify, and the video version will be, for now, exclusively on Patreon if you do like to watch the episodes or see the fuller episode, which is not quite as uh, edited as the version we release in audio. That's it for now. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, have a great day.